Welcome to our podcast, Revival in Jesus' Way. Disciple making is Jesus' way to change the world. This is the one mission that his people should focus on. There is only one way, his way, to create lasting transformation. And God is calling his church to wake up. I'm your host, Tim Cahoe. And I am Yin Yan Xu. Hi, friends. You are at our Christian Foundation series, Episode 4. The New Testament has been changed. Four steps to prove them wrong. So, again, Foundation series on a list of basic topics which have to be settled in the new Christian's life for future further growth. We hope this series helps our listeners in two ways. First is for your own growth. Second is to help others to have clarity through your explanation. People won't just naturally get it. First Peter 3.15 talks about we should always prepare to make a defense for the truth. It says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So when we learn how to defend for a certain topic, for a certain important topic about the truth, this can not only help, this can not only benefit your non-believer friends, but also help your Christian friends to grow to maturity. And for non, especially for non-believer friends, people, uh, people will judge from your responses about Christianity, whether Christianity faith is just a silly faith without reasonable evidence, or actually a solid faith based on theories, logic, and evidence. Mm, that's right. Not, not just by whether or not you believe, but also based on how you feel about all those different areas. If, you, if you're lacking, like in the area of, you know, like whether or not scripture is reliable or uh, the resurrection of those things, and you feel more unsure about it yourself, that, that will be conveyed to those that you're sharing your faith with, or those you're interacting with on a regular basis. You know, a lot of times the, we, people will quote um, this kind of fake Francis of Assisi pro, quote that we should preach the gospel every day and use words if necessary. And kind of we use that in a way that to say like, oh, you should just display the gospel. You but, should just do good in front of people and mm, people will see how great this space is. Mm, yeah, but then if you, if even when you display in your regular life, if you don't show a confidence in the resurrection, a confidence in these things, these basics of the faith, then the people that you talk to and interact with will not catch that. They won't catch that this this is a faith with a strong, mm-hmm. the strong backdrop that it does have, the strong foundation that it does have. So mm-hmm. in ourselves, we really need to look into the evidence mm-hmm. and make our own foundation strong in order to be able to help others. Mm-hmm. Because God is our creator and he created human being with a brain. And so human brain can process those different uh, debates and logics, mm-hmm. right? So, so something makes sense to you when you present it in a reasonable way, logical way to the other person who who hasn't believed it yet. That person uh, will get it, even though people have different reasons to to reject um, the salvation, but still, uh, people still can normally process it. Cross cultural, you know, cross um, cross cultural, cross uh, religion, actually, because uh, God gave us a brain, and we should honor that design, right? So, a popular video from uh, Business Insider channel from YouTube is called "How the Bible Has Been Changed Over the Past Two Thousand Years," and it has one hundred and fourteen thousand nine hundred and twenty-seven views. So, it's a quite popular video. And it, it it tries to it tries to tell you that because the Bible it thinks the Bible has been changed in the past two thousand years, so Bible is Bible message is not reliable. And here are some of the top comments. The person says, "I'm an atheist and just wondering if a human wrote the Bible by himself, how people have faith in the book. If it's changed, it can't be sent from above." A perfect God would not be the author of an imperfect book. 
I really wish I could read the original unaltered Bible. And a sad face. The Bible has been updated more times than Android phones. <laughs> so funny ones, but uh, and then when you so staying tuned and when you listen through this episode, actually you should be able to answer all those oppositions easily. Now, all of this episode, we will focus on uh, four, four bridges, four steps you can use to defend the reliability of New Testament. And next time, we'll introduce Old Testament. But this time, we'll focus on the New Testament. So it might help to if we can think about some common uh, situations where people might run into or people might say that they, they don't think Scripture is reliable or some reasons um, people may have for this of being suspicious in general of the New Testament. Uh, you hear sometimes people talk about this conspiracy theory. It's like, did Constantine change the Bible? Did that someone along the way um, change things to be more in line with a certain view? And um, it's understandable in some ways because, I mean, even today you have these deep fake, this thing called deep fake where videos themselves can even be faked. You know, audio files can be faked. And yeah, news can be faked. And um, just so that there's, you know, definitely the the possibility of things being faked in some way um, is a real concern. Another um, thing that people uh, will often point to is the telephone game. So if you haven't heard of the telephone game, it's when people will pass a word down the line with a line of people and each person passes down the word and then by the end um, the words all jumbled and mixed up so people can think of scripture and say oh well if people pass this down then why isn't it like the telephone game even after the first few turns in the telephone game usually the words are all mixed up so how do we know that the new testament isn't just some telephone game um, and that what we have today is completely different from what we had at that time. Mm-hmm. And I like to watch that kind of funny show. Like it really made people laugh because it, it um, the in the end to, to the last person, the message has been completely changed and mm-hmm. people laugh. So like, I guess that's why a lot of those uh, entertainment shows, they like to use that game, you know, to entertain people. So people say, oh, Bible is like that. Um, but think about it. It's a, it's a, it's different because this, uh, this game people need to rely on their memory, not only memory, but then in the first time, can they get the message right? But then, but then, but the Bible has been um, copied down, later on printed down. They have the many manuscript that they can refer to, and then they carefully try to copy them one by one, and then do the proofreading. So I will get to more of that later. And then when we when we discuss about this topic um, earlier, we actually each week if we make a new topic, we uh, at least like discuss it on and off in our uh, daily life. So actually when we discuss about it, I suddenly thought of a situation. It's when we, so think about it, when we walk to a bookstore, right? Say like Barnes and Nobles. And then I just suddenly say, like, hey, Tim, you know, um, on this shelf, this and that book have been changed. Actually, uh, the, initially, the, the, the author didn't mean to write like that, and someone changed it. So if I say that, actually, very naturally, I will need to offer some, some sort of evidence to Tim to say, like, hey, actually... You know, maybe someone really close family, they, they stole the original manuscript and they changed some passages and they also sent it to publisher and also uh, maybe bribed all other people who know about it. And in some certain way, when this book is published, uh, you know, also um, avoid the suspicious from the author. So something like that you know like it needs to be a conspiracy and also i need to uh, offer the evidence to convince tim otherwise we walk into a bookstore we wouldn't say like hey this is fake Mm. or even to people like we wouldn't we would ask hey what's your name and then someone tell me um their name and in the bookstore i would say no you are fake then mm. I need to say, like, why, how, how does it happen? I need to prove it, right? Mm, exactly. And it's it's kind of like the Bible is unique 
in a way and in kind of a weird way in that it is it, it's one of the few things where the conspiracy theory is kind of the the more almost the more popular view in some ways in society nowadays where people love to uh, make like the Da Vinci Code and things like this to try to point out like oh like actually maybe the Bible isn't as reliable. You hear all the time the stuff about um, oh was it changed at Constantine? Oh we you know we have these like we set, read through those YouTube comments like that's a very popular view. So kind of it's the Bible's in this unique place where the conspiracy theory is almost what people start with without really any reasoning behind it. They jump to the conspiracy theory. So there's actually, it's very odd in this way, right? It's not something we would do with other works. We would mm -hmm. normally we would normally give them the benefit of the doubt until someone has proven otherwise. But then with the Bible, and we should think about why we tend to do this, um, a lot of people will jump to the conspiracy theory and almost want you to disprove the conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's like people hope this can be true. So try very hard to to uh, to find all kinds of possibilities to prove that Bible message is not reliable so that the Bible truth wouldn't hold you accountable. Mm. Um, people who doubt actually should prove themselves right, mm. right? But today we will walk the extra mile actually to offer the evidence of why Bible's message is not changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so um, I want to build on uh, what we've talked about so far, which is kind of the format of these foundations. We're kind of going step by step into the Christian faith to show that from the bottom up, it's very reliable at what we believe as Christians. Um, and so we talked about the evidence for God's existence on during the foundation number one. And we said that based on the things we know about the world and about our own nature, uh, we can say two things about God. One, that he's the creator. Um, and from the clam cosmological argument was the one that we gave at that time, showing that uh, the universe had a creator, had a beginning, and the sufficient cause for that beginning is God. Um, and then also that God is good. And so we talked about the virtues. We talked about the moral law. We talked about um, those things and, and how they point to a good God existing. And so not only a creator, but a good creator um, is is the result of the arguments from the first uh, foundation that we put down. So I have this deductive argument. Again, a deductive argument takes these different statements, and it goes one statement at a time called premises. And each statement uh, is stands on its own basically until the end where you take the evidence that's been built up and you come up with a conclusion based on that evidence. So the, the first statement is any good creator of anything desires to interact with their creation to help them to live well. And I think this is pretty settled. I think just about everybody, even if they disagree with foundation number one, they would agree with this, that, well, of course, if, if we can say someone is both good and they're a creator of something like a parent, if, if a parent is good, then they will want to interact with their kids, right? Uh, when, when we see these fathers or mothers, um, more often in the news and things like that, we hear about fathers who are leaving their kids, and we think that that's not a good you know, creator, that's not a good uh, parent of them because they're not interacting with their kids' life. They want to just leave as soon as possible. They want to get away. Mm -hmm. um, but it's then, not normal. Yeah, it's not normal, and it's, it's definitely not good. Is um, so like if you create something, we expect or the standard of what good is in that case is really you should want to interact. When you have these kids who are put up for adoption, even uh, and there's some good reasons why someone should put up a kid for adoption, but we kind of highlight in TV shows and series and things like that those mothers or fathers that kind of in a in a kind way, in a good way that respects the foster parents. The, they want to step in and say, hey, um, they want to be part of that, that kid's life. They want to help them to live well, even if they didn't get to be part of it. And that's a very kind of selfless, good image. So like this, I think this is pretty well established from us, one, that any good creator of something desires to interact and also help that created being to live well. Um, two, God created us and the universe. And again, 
Um, the arguments for that are in foundation number one, um, the arguments for God's existence. Um, but And we're just going to kind of, if you want to hear those arguments again, listen to foundation one. You can wrestle with those arguments and, and think about what arguments we have for God's existence. But God created us and God created the universe. Um, third premise is that God uniquely stamped humanity with his image. And we see this from two, really three proofs. One proof is that morality within us. We have this should for how we should behave. Like, what? no matter what country we live in, no matter what place we live in, we know that treating your parents well, for instance, is something you should do. Unless your parents have completely, like, forgone that right, like, really, they, they've, like, abused you and mistreated you. In a normal situation, uh, you should treat your parents well with dignity in some way. You should treat other people with a degree of respect. Um, you shouldn't murder. You shouldn't kill without a good reason for having done that. You shouldn't steal from another person. You shouldn't disrespect another person that way. It really comes down to like this this respect for one another that we should have. Um, so like we have this moral should that 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 isn't really dependent on society, isn't dependent on anything else. It's we we if we violate it for just survival's sake, we, we still feel that we've done something wrong. So there's this morality that kind of stands over us. And this is part of this unique stamp that, you know, the creator, the one who created us, put that in us. Um, so we have this stamp from us. We have this rationality. You know, we're the only creature that really reasons the way we do and, and reasons toward truth, tries to figure out what the truth of the world is, the truth about God and things like this. And this, this natural searching for truth and searching for um, the for God in a lot of ways is is a mark of the Creator, and then the desire to be good, which kind of is part of morality, but this desire to be a virtuous person goes a little bit further of wanting good qualities. This is another uh, mark of that God has uniquely stamped us, and so the conclusion is therefore we should expect God would interact with us and help us to live well. So because God has not only created us, but also uniquely had a role in creating us, made us in a special way. It, we should really expect that God would interact with us in some way. And I think this conclusion is actually pretty accepted from just, you know, having some debates with um, people who are more like agnostic or atheist. Most people would assume this as well, that, oh, well, if God's so good, he should interact with us. Mm -hmm. And understanding each other is the first step of interacting with each other. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's You true. didn't expect <laughs> but, that. But yeah. it makes sense, yeah. And, and yeah. that's why God would explain himself. You know, he wants us to know more about him. He wants us to search and be able to know him. Um, and he wants to give us a way to do that in a way that meets his purposes in the world. His purpose is for us in a lot of ways too. So um, we should expect that he would act and he would communicate in a way that is in accordance with his character as well. Um, so today um, what we want to say, our conclusion is the New Testament is a reliable source of information about Jesus Christ. Um, the resurrection and fulfilled prophecy also tell us the Gospels um, and then the, the letters that come after it by the Apostles um, are not just a regular biography and information about him, but they're um, information about the Messiah, the the divine Son of God. So that that the, not only can we know that the New Testament gives us reliable information about Jesus, but from that information, from the fulfilled prophecy we see from the Old Testament into the New Testament, and from the evidence for the resurrection that Jesus really rose from the dead, we can see that. Jesus is more than a mere man, more than a mere carpenter, as Josh McDowell would say. He is the Son of God. So we're going to do mainly talk about the topic of how can we um, get it from our New Testament that you have at your home right now, probably that you have on your phone, uh, wherever you might have it. How can we get from there to Jesus, actually? How, how do we know that that book gives us reliable information? about Jesus Christ who lived um, in that very first century AD. How can we know that? Well, the way that we're going to go through today, like Anne said, is we're going to go through four bridges. And they're not actual bridges, but they're kind of these metaphorical bridges that give us a, a picture of how do we get from one point to another point. So just uh, stick with me. 
the first point is the first bridge is going to be a bridge from the Bible you have at home, the Bible you have in your phone, whatever translation it is, to the manuscripts we have. Now, by manuscripts, I mean the um, the documents that we use to make the translations, the ancient documents that we have, the ones that have been copied down over the centuries, those copies that we still have. How do you get from your translation to say, okay, well, this translation is an accurate representation of those manuscripts as a whole, of the evidence that they give. The second thing that we want, the second bridge is going to be from those manuscripts. How do we get to the original? We don't have the originals for the New Testament. And we'll get into some reasons for that. But this second bridge is to say, okay, well, these manuscripts, all of these manuscripts we have, how do they connect us to the original? How can we know that the information that was in that original when John, Matthew, whoever, Paul was writing down those originals, how can we know that it's connected uh, and that what we have in the manuscripts is that same information? How can we know it's not changed? Yeah, how can we know it hasn't been changed? Just like the Business Insider video said, right, that the New Testament's been changed in all this way. How can we know that's not true? Um, bridge number three is taking us from that original to, okay, who is the author of this book? How do we know um, such and such author um, that Mark authored the, the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, that Matthew authored the Gospel of Matthew? So we'll get into that. And then the final bridge connects us from that author to Jesus. So how do we know that author had reliable information, had had seen and, and known Jesus well enough to be able to write on it in a way that was true and accurate. So um, those are the four bridges, and we'll just jump into the first one. How do we know that the Bible we have today is um, connected to the manuscripts we have? And so there's a few good reasons. And um, so Without those four bridges, actually, you cannot conclude that Jesus is the Messiah and all this because Bible includes those informations. And if if Bible is changed and, and Bible's message is not reliable, mm. then actually you cannot come uh, come up with the conclusion that you said in the beginning. Mm, that's right, exactly. Right? So, so that's why it's important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. So if we... Don't yeah. If we don't um, know that the New Testament is a reliable information about um, Jesus, then like you said, we don't know that that we it, we can't say with certainty that the New Testament is really telling us true things, right? We want to know that the New Testament is giving us true, accurate information about Jesus, and isn't just like some made-up fables or some information that at once maybe it held some truth, but now it's been changed so much that mm -hmm. it doesn't really give us accurate information. So we want to know, uh, and and we want to know ourselves too, have that confidence that actually the New Testament does give us reliable information about mm -hmm. Jesus. And so mm -hmm. we, we're going to take the journey through these four bridges to get there. Yeah, so think about this is the something you can really sit down and discuss with maybe a teenager in a, uh, Sunday school mm. uh, before they get to college, before they get to uh, high school. If it is something you can discuss with your, you know, doubt Thomas mm. <laughs> friend. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's okay, good. So, yeah. bridge one. So, bridge one um, is going to be, again, from our Bible to the manuscripts. And so, um, one thing that people will often bring up, actually, when we're um, doing evangelism or discipleship, people will say, well, why are there so many translations? Like, it just blows my mind, like, all these different versions. And we saw it in the YouTube comments. He's like, oh, well, the Bible has been updated more than Android. And so you get this impression people have of, oh, there's many translations. It must mean that there's many changes that need to be made because many things are incorrect, right? That's the impression some people have. So yeah, while some people get confused and think many translations are a bad thing, actually many translations are a good thing because they give us many checkpoints, many points of reference we can go off of and look at this translation versus this translation as this translation, even as layman, and see actually the results of these different committees and these different groups of scholars who have made these different translations. And one thing we'll find is actually there's a high degree 
of agreement. Actually, maybe 99% is just, they, they very much agree. Uh, one thing we were talking about the other day is like when I've studied with Chinese guys, a lot of times I'll have them read the Bible in their own language. And then I'll read off like the NASB or something like that, the translation. The NASB is New American Standard Bible. And um, we, we, I can answer questions based on specific verses by them pointing out the Chinese verse, me pointing out the NASB verse. You know, when I've done it with ESV, it's the same. And you, there's this high degree of just agreement to where we can do Bible study with three different translations and all get the same meaning, basically, especially when you start to go into chapters. If you start to read it, the Bible like a real book as it was meant to be read. No matter what translation you're going through, you get the same general overall meaning. No matter what translation you're doing, you can study together. So a brief history of translation. So John Wycliffe, uh, the Wycliffe translation, late 1300s. So John Wycliffe wrote out the um, Wycliffe translation. He wrote it mainly to give people who spoke English a uh, English translation of the Bible so they could read the Bible for themselves. You know, he saw all these heresies that were popping up in the Catholic Church and these things that they're teaching that weren't biblical. And he said, you know, people just need to be able to read Scripture, read God's Word themselves. And so John Wycliffe translated the Bible himself. Years later, um, King James left the Catholic Church, and we know there's a whole controversy and story, and this is kind of the birth of the Anglican Church and so he separated England from um, the Catholic Church. And so he had this committee put together of uh, the scholars at that time, and they came up with the King James Version, about 1500 A.D. And so you have this King James Version Bible um, that, that came out with a committee of scholars. The King James Version really stayed um, the main version until the 1900s. So like it remained for a long time. Um, the next change that took place, so the KJV um, in 1500, and it remained until 1900. And then the a big point here is the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, was not developed because they're like, oh, look at all these changes that the New Testament has gone through. Look at this. And that's kind of the impression you get from this um, video from Business Insider. Oh, look, the changes in 2,000 years. No. That's not the, like, the translations were not developed because of that. The first translation was developed to make the English more clear into more contemporary language. So the NSB was more contemporary version. There's a little bit more scholarship um, that went into it as far as looking at the manuscripts. But it was basically the King James Version just um, in contemporary language. So the biggest reason is because our uh, English, our language yeah. uh, evolved. Uh, through time. Mm -hmm, that's right. So we, 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 now we talk like this. We don't talk like a thou, thy, right? Like in the King James time. Mm, that's, yeah. That's the main reason. Yeah, it's like, just like, um, uh, I, for me, I have a hard time to read those um, Shakespeare's mm, play. Exactly. But then there are some books which use the modern English to uh, rewrite those sentences. Um, doesn't change the meaning, but then you, you get it. Yeah, exactly. So like it's just like taking Shakespeare and making it more into the modern day language, clean up the sentences so they're in more modern words. And that's what was done with NASB, mainly to clean up the English so that it was more understandable. Um, now, the RSV and some of the later translations after that um, were done through a different method with the manuscripts. Now, it wasn't because people said, oh, look at all these changes. We need to put on a new translation quick because of the changes. It was because the KJV and earlier translations were done um, with a way of thinking that had been like the main mindset for a long time be because there were fewer manuscripts at that time. They, they mainly considered um, there were some central... Um, manuscripts that they said that this ma this manuscript is the most reliable one, and so they said go off of this manuscript. And they didn't really want to like kind of take the different manuscripts and compare them and figure out okay what words are present in this one and not present in this one. Kind of figure out okay let's go back to the beginning. Let's see if we can figure out more of what the original said through these other manuscripts. But the King James version they just used the one. 
So as the RSV, NIV, ESV, these uh, whole committees, and you can find the names of the people who were part of these committees. You can find the methods of translation they used. You can find you know, their methodology. All that stuff is public knowledge, exactly how they came up with the translation and the source info. And if you speak Greek, if you learn Greek, you can actually look at the original and you can compare it. And many people have. Um, compared it to the original. Every Bible scholar, every pastor needs to go through and learn Greek and Hebrew and actually read them in their original language. So um, there's a lot of looking at these and, and comparing to see if the translation is done well. Well, the RSV and ESV and NIV, they, they go with a different method that tries to utilize the, the plethora of manuscripts we have. Now again, like even though this is a different method that uses more manuscripts and does have some information in it that being included and, and evaluated and things like that that the King James Version didn't really have, um, if you read, again, like I said, the NASB is one of my go-to study Bibles. I'll read it with people who are reading ESV, uh, with people who are reading the Chinese translation, which was done off the Greek manuscripts. and we're basically reading the exact same thing. There really aren't that many differences. And that was the amazing thing. Even though they used this different manuscript method, which um, utilized all these different manuscripts, there were not like major differences. It was not ground shaking you know, it, at all. It was the same Bible and clear. They, again, they clar clarified the, the language a little bit. And that's what we see with the, the reason for the ESV and NIV was they used a different way of translating in order to make the English clear again, more contemporary. And this is the pattern, making the English more contemporary, not like, oh, searching and we need to update it because there's all these mistakes. This is the, the first bridge is, does our Bible connect to the manuscripts? And actually we have very reliable information that it does. So we have a high degree of confidence that our Bible is the same as those manuscripts information contained there. So, so bridge number two are the manuscripts that we have connected to the original writing of those authors. And I'll say something quickly about why the, we don't have the originals. One is because manuscript material they used was animal skins. And it was passed around from church to church. Like, they passed these letters around all over the place whenever they were first written before they started to be copied down. And just over time, animal skin does not last. It rots. There's all kind of things that go, go bad with it before they use parchment some years later. So, like, these early animal skin um, writings could be expected to eventually fade out, to rot, to go bad. Um, another reason is the persecution of the church, and we know that there were writing, different writings were burned while uh, Christians were being tortured and killed in those first centuries, or in those first few hundred years. Um, and then there's the Jewish practice, which was um, a lot like uh, the way we treat the American flag. So for Jewish people, they considered scriptures to be very holy. And so if a scripture, if a manuscript was ever damaged in any way, they would bury it. They would write out a new one and they would bury the old one. And the idea was to preserve the holiness of Scripture by always letting it be written and in a form that was very was holy and, and was good. And, and so it represented God well. And again, we do the same, a similar thing with American flags where you're not supposed to fly a flag, an American flag that has, is damaged at all um, because it represents the country. And, and so actually you're supposed to burn the flag, and there's a very specific way you do it, but you're supposed to do that if um, if it becomes too damaged. You know, very ceremoniously, you know, honoring the flag, you're supposed to actually destroy the older flag in the right way, and then use a flag that is in good condition. Okay, um, so those are the three reasons why the original, original means like uh, when Paul wrote those letters, it's mm -hmm. really Paul or or Paul scribe wrote it in the first place. So those uh, those will be called original, and mm -hmm. the original already doesn't exist, and yeah. it makes mm -hmm. yeah. So the original that that's just kind of saying that okay, the original doesn't exist. So what do we do about it? 
So we don't have this original. There's good reasons why we wouldn't uh, have the original on hand. And so how can we know what the original said? And so the the thing that should give us a, just a boost of confidence actually is that the number of manuscripts we have, even starting within the first hundred years of when these books were written. So we have 5,700 manuscripts. Uh, and to, for a comparison manuscript wise, most works in antiquity um, that were written before the printing press and those things, uh, if you look at the, the source material that they use for that, the manuscripts, the copies of it, uh, it's about four feet high for each one. Like that's about an average, about four feet high of material that the, the modern day translator can go off of to figure out what did it say, and it's a struggle. With the New Testament, we have about a mile high like four feet high versus a mile high of manuscripts and source material that we can go off. So that's a lot of material. That's a lot of manuscripts to compare one with another. Um, and these are in different languages. When early in, in the early days when Christianity first moved to um, Egypt and that, that area and it went into Coptic or when it was translated into Latin also pretty early, you have these different languages and different manuscripts that can be compared one with the other. The other thing is within a hundred years, just within that first hundred years, we have manuscripts that we can compare with. This is unheard of. The most, the, the average for other works of antiquity is hundreds of years. Sometimes even like things about Caesar and, and very common figures everyone accepts really lived it, you, you have it separated almost a thousand years from when the manuscript was written and when we have copies. So this, this only like within a hundred years uh, removed from the original is, is huge. Um, so 5,700 manuscripts, a hundred years removed from um, when the originals were written, um, some less than that, um, and uh, some within the 5,700, you have some that are further than that, but we have manuscripts that were written within that first hundred years. Um, so what if people say, um, well, uh, 5,700, and then all of those 5,700 would change? Mm, so that would be a pretty silly kind of accusation because they, are, they rose up from different, within different traditions. So basically, like you think about where the early scriptures went, and you had Scriptures, again, before Constantine, before Constantine was ever even a little baby. Um, this is the time frame we're talking about where we have manuscripts that we can look off of. Like this is, a, a, there's a good number of these manuscripts that come even before that time. And you're thinking about manuscripts that are risen, risen, rising up in these different towns and different places um, and coming up. You can compare those with each other. And, and to think that they were edited, all edited somehow, and that these Christians were found out and then they're edited, like you would be able to tell if they're edited. Like it's, this isn't like a thing that you can take an eraser with nowadays and, or just erase the text and then write something and new reprint. on top of it. Yeah. And okay. reprint it. This is handwritten oh, at yeah, that time. Right. And then it goes back again. And, and the fact that there are these different ways, different places where it's rising up to, means that it was being, it's not just being copied by one set, one line of scribes, it's being copied by this line of scribes, and this line of scribes, and then this line of scribes in this language, and this line of scribes in this language, and so you can compare these different streams in a way, and you can say, take one from this stream, and you can compare it to one from this stream, and you can see, okay, are there differences, or is this the same thing? And the, the amazing thing is that, um, it, it will, let's talk a little bit about the differences. So when we look at differences just straight out, it, there are about 400,000 differences between those 5,700 manuscripts. And a difference is basically when there's any kind of spelling, any kind of grammar, any, if there's any change in the language at all um, from a base text. And even if it, that like word difference is the the change is in a hundred other manuscripts that's just one variant that's one change um, so this is actually a huge number but when we begin to really look at it and again people will throw out this like there's Muslim 
apologist who would throw out this number, Bart Ehrman, is the one of the main ones who loves to throw out the number of variants and how many variants we have. But the thing is, when you begin to really break down the variants, it's really very, um, it's not very scary. It's a very small number, in fact, of what actually means any, has any meaning whatsoever. So when we're looking at these variants, uh, Daniel Wallace says that there's 99% of the variants are not meaningful. And this is something even Bart Ehrman agrees with. Uh, 99 of the 99% are these grammar and spelling differences. It's like the word John having an extra N, or it's like uh, word order. So like the phrase is exactly the same meaning, but it's in a different order. And to give some reference, Daniel Wallace talks about um, some of the uh, the way that Greek word order and you know with spelling differences and the different words that can have a very similar meaning. The way that you can get uh, take one phrase and just expand it out based on what that scholar is kind of, and again, this is these are scribes who are writing word for word the you know this whole New Testament. So you have to think about this is a person doing it. Of course, they're going to make some mistakes along the way. So um, like the phrase John loves Mary can actually be written in over a thousand different ways and still have the same meaning in Greek. So it's if just like a little three-word phrase like that can be thousands, there can be thousands of different ways, you know, when you, based on the spelling differences of the different words, based on the different conjunctions, based on the different, um, yeah, the order that you place the words. Um, that's a lot of ways you can write John loves Mary. And so, you know, you think about there's a lot longer sentences than just a three-word sentence. And so this is this is actually what, 99% of these variants are, and scholars agree with agree on this, that the vast number of them are not meaningful um, at all. That they, they literally actually don't change the meaning. Now, about one-fourth of 1% 1 of that 400,000, according to Daniel Wallace, is um, meaningful. But some, uh, but the majority even of these one-fourth of 1% meaningful ones are ones that are very easy to spot. And so he gives the example of like the word onion instead of the word union in like a document, uh, a legal document uh, for you in the United States. Like you see like state of the union or something like that in some historical document. And instead it's a state of the onion address. So it's like the typo. Yeah, it's like a typo. Um, it changes the meaning though, right? They, that's why it's called meaningful because like state of the onion is different than state of the union. So like the meaning has changed. So like, but it's pretty easy for them to tell actually this other meaning is not the right meaning because based on, it's, it's just obvious, it's a typo. But then um, you do have some passages that, that they do affect the meaning and scholars do actually debate about this tiny number of um, passages. And again, even the, that small number that they do debate on, there are zero essential doctrines affected by variants. And this is something interesting, even at Bart Ehrman is a lead scholar kind of against the New Testament reliability. And even he admits in his appendix of his book that actually zero essential doctrines are affected by any of these variants whatsoever. So none of the main things that we talk about for the Christian faith, that Jesus' resurrection, with who Paul was, Paul's story, that Jesus was God and man, these essential doctrines, what salvation means, all of this stuff, all of the stuff that we would say is important, um, it's not affected at all by the variants. So it's there's actually this huge confidence we can have in the New Testament and in the our manuscripts reaching back and being accurate representations. So again, we have 5,700 manuscripts uh, just within 100 years removed from the originals for some of them. 99% um, of the variants or the um, changes are not meaningful at all. Um, about less than 1% have some meaning change. And um, those meaning changes are usually very easy to spot. There are a few cases, the end of Mark being one, the woman caught in adultery being another. Those are kind of the two main ones that make up this area. Um, but those don't affect any essential doctrines. So nothing 
none of the key beliefs of the of Christianity are affected at all whatsoever mm-hmm. by those now, changes. Now, here is the question. So, uh, well, there are many Asian books, right? So if we say, um, does Confucius' book have the original version? No. The original? They also don't. Yeah, the vast majority of works in history and antiquity do not. There's, I, don't, I can't even think of any that really... But by this standard, and then if I, as a Chinese, I go like, oh, our Confucius said that. Yeah. Then You can say, like, well, you, you don't have the original, how do you know? Maybe he mm-hmm. didn't say that. Yeah, exactly. And about all kinds of other things, too, where, again, like, the New Testament is uniquely posed in that it actually stands out as kind of the very top amongst like ancient documents and manuscripts and closeness to the original. Um, most documents are in a worse, the vast, like pretty much any other document in antiquity you can think of is in a worse place than the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So like we said in the beginning, this is kind of like, we're, we're explaining all this, but it's kind of because people assume the conspiracy theory. And now mm-hmm. we're talking about how John F. Kennedy, you know, wasn't abducted by aliens. We're talking about like, he, you know, like the, there wasn't this uh, fourth, the third shooter in a tower somewhere. Like we're, we're, we're combating a conspiracy theory mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Because these other books in antiquity are not, you know, asked for this kind of evidence. But for the New Testament, you know, praise God, we have this kind of really good evidence. So now we're on to the third bridge. And so who are these New Testament authors and how can we know that, how can we know who they are? So there's several different church fathers. They really wrote uh, yeah. the, the, the books that they wrote in that way. Yeah. How can we know that? Well, well, we, we know from bridge two that they wrote it in that way, but how can we know who they are? I think is the thing we want to look at. So how do we know that John wrote the book of John? How do we know that, that Mark wrote the book of Mark? that whoever yeah, yeah, that original like author you, was sometimes people are challenged and said that well how do you even know who wrote we don't even like no they'll say no one signed the letters okay. in the new testament kind of like you know no one signed the gospel of john said like love john you know like it, like oh, paul's okay. letters like sometimes they're signed by paul or um yeah yeah you know like normal like some of the other letters were signed by someone in some way but then the Gospels don't really have anyone who signed at the end and said they wrote it. So how do we know that, that who wrote it? And so the, the names in the books actually come from what the church fathers have said. And there's a few different ones. Irenaeus is a big one. Um, but there's a few who mention the authors of the New Testament. And what we see um, from the way that they mention it, is one, it's casually mentioned. So it's not like they're building a case like, oh, like, uh, you, you know, if we if they're making these things up, we would expect them to kind of build it up to try to give you a bunch of evidence for it. But basically, they give you no evidence. They're just kind of they, they casually say it. It was just something that the the people at that time knew and they accepted that these were the authors. Um, the other thing that we have is that for these books, um, most of the authors are not. They're not famous disciples. They're not the people that you would pick if you made up the story to say that, oh, Mark wrote it. I mean, Mark was kind of a disgraced guy. He, um, the, we don't have that much information about him in the New Testament, and the information we do have is not all good. You know, one time when Barnabas and uh, Paul had traveled with him one time, he couldn't handle it, and Paul didn't even want to travel with him. And Barnabas and Paul kind of broke up as um, traveling companions because of Mark. So he's not like the first choice that someone would pick um, to be the author of one of the books, of one of the Gospels, you know, of, of describing who Jesus is. You would, if you wanted to make it up, if the church fathers are making this up, then they would choose somebody other than Mark. Also Luke, why not say Paul just wrote it? Why not say um, any, why not say Peter wrote it or Thomas wrote it, but instead we have Luke who, again, is not mentioned very much in the New Testament. You have some brief mentions of him in the letters, Paul's letters. You have um, some mentions of him in Acts, but really it's very few and far. And then Matthew um, is one of the least mentioned disciples in the New Testament. Sometimes people even uh, wonder, like, 
what his name was because there's two different names that we have for Matthew in the New Testament. But again, like this is the person that they're saying wrote this. So it doesn't seem like something someone would make up. And the way that they mention it also doesn't seem like something that they would make up. When you look at this, you get the feeling that this is something that's true. They're just saying that what has been passed down and they're saying it in the generation right after um, the apostles. So they're also sitting in a position where they would know they would have, they would have been in this lineage. They would have been like brought to Christ either by an apostle or by um, someone who was saved by an apostle. Like they, they're in this direct line where they would have that information. So I think bridge three, just in those things is pretty well established. So the last bridge is going to be bridge four. And for this bridge, uh, we're making the final connection of how we can know that the authors had a connection to Jesus. So they would have known about Jesus and how we can know that what they wrote down is reliable about who he is. So the first thing for the connection of these authors uh, to Jesus, we're talking about Mark, John Mark, uh, Luke, Matthew, John, who wrote primarily who wrote the biographies about Jesus um, in the Gospels. Um, so how can we know that they were connected to Jesus? Well, Luke writes at the beginning of uh, his first book, of the, the book of Luke, that he gathered eyewitness testimony. So the way that Luke has the connection to Jesus is that he um, he was a Paul's traveling companion, so we know that. Acts and Acts, we see clearly that he's traveling with Paul. In the end of Paul's letters, he was there with him. And so it's accepted that Luke was a traveling companion with Paul. So being a traveling companion with Paul, he would have met a lot of people who had eyewitness experience with Jesus. And this is exactly what he says at the beginning of Luke. He says, I gathered this eyewitness testimony together to give a more accurate account. So Luke's connection is there. It's through many different eyewitnesses who knew Jesus. Um, as for Matthew and John, those are a little bit easier. Um, Matthew was a tax collector. He was a uh, disciple of Jesus, and so he was regularly with Jesus. And so he would have had a insider's kind of perspective on who Jesus was. And then John, same story. John was this very close disciple to Jesus. You know, he calls himself a lot of scholars think when he says the disciple whom Jesus loved, he's talking about himself. So John has a very close connection to Jesus and would have known a lot, would have heard a lot of his internal uh, conversations with the group and things like that. We can get a lot of good information based on what John would have known. And then finally, who is Mark and how is he connected? Well, um, if we if we try to gather different sources on that talk about Mark, uh, we can, uh, without having to accept the whole Bible's uh, reliability, because that's one thing that we're discussing right now, we can still take little some pieces from it, from different books written by different authors, and say, do these give credence, do these give us any information about who Mark could have been? We have three sources of information here. Two of them are from the Bible, one is outside the Bible. So from inside the Bible, we have Acts 12, uh, verses 12 through 14, and Peter is has escaped from this jail. He's been freed by this angel, and he goes to a place where people are praying for him, and that's uh, John Mark's home, it says. It's his mother's home. And so that's the first kind of connection point. And then we see in 1 Peter 5, 13, um, Peter is writing from what we think is Rome. He calls it Babylon. She was in Babylon, so the church in Babylon or the church in Rome, um, because Babylon was a common way for Jewish people to refer to Rome at that time because of the similarities in their mind between Babylon biblically and what Rome was doing. And Peter and First Peter 5.13 writes about, um, he says that, you know, Mark also gives his greetings. He casually mentions that Mark is there with him. So apparently Mark has traveled somewhere with Peter, uh, all the way to Rome from where we saw in Jerusalem earlier. Um, and then Papias says that um, from uh, what was passed down to him, he's a church father, that next generation, he's saying that uh, Mark actually became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered, uh, not indeed in order of the things that had been sent and done by the Lord. And so um, Papias is uh, confirming that 
Mark had this connection to Peter. He was going around with Peter, and he was hearing the things about Jesus. And we know that Peter, who Mark was traveling with, had a very close connection and relationship with Jesus. He was like the main disciple. And so this connection here gives us a good connection to Jesus, and that he would have heard a lot about personal talks with Jesus. He would have heard a lot about what Jesus did, what are the main points in Peter's mind and Jesus' life. So we have a good connection to Jesus here as well. Now we move on to the question, how do we know that, okay, we know that they had the connection. How do we know that what they wrote was accurate? And so there's a few ways we can kind of test this or think about this. Um, so one way is that we have four Gospels, which again, the plethora of sources is a good thing. So we said this was translations, we said this was manuscripts, and now with four Gospels, the plethora of information and perspectives and angles that we're looking at this situation is a good thing. You know, you have these uh, something someone else may have missed or they may have seen and they may have not understood completely. Uh, you have another angle on it now. You have these four angles looking at the same thing, looking at Jesus' life. So when you compare them, you get the same picture of the same person. You don't get these four Jesuses. Um, you get one Jesus. You get the same Jesus in all these different letters. And so that gives credence to the fact that they wrote accurately about him. Um, also, these letters were written. We know that they were written during the lives of people who knew Jesus, people who would have seen him rise from the dead. Again, Luke is saying he gathered eyewitness testimony. It's uh, based on things that um, Peter had said. So these things are being written by people who are eyewitnesses or new eyewitnesses, and then they would have been read by people who are eyewitnesses or who knew eyewitnesses. And so there was that potential to challenge these and say, oh, no, that's not what happened. Here's what happened. Or someone saying that, hey, like my brother or my, my, uh, my grandpa said that this is the way it happened. And so there was this potential for challenging it. Um, and it doesn't seem that these were challenged. It seems that they were accepted. Even in the very next generation, you have people talking about these Gospels, and they don't say mention anything about like anything being inaccurate, not reliable with them. They mention them as good sources of Jesus' life. So that's a, another proof of, hey, this is probably something accurate, because no one is saying, hey, it's inaccurate. Hey, what about this? Um, so that's another sign of accuracy. Finally, um, something that's agreed on by most scholars, um, and Gary Habermas has these core facts that he says like 90% or more scholars in, in a very high percentile of scholars from all different sorts of worldview agree with these facts. And one of them is that the disciples had experiences that they really believed were the risen Jesus. And part of the reason they accept that fact is that uh, Christian persecution in the first uh, few hundred years is well known. It's well attested to. There's all kinds of biblical and non-biblical sources that talk about there was persecution, there was torture, there were things going on where you knew you would face persecution if you talked about Jesus. If you were publicly proclaiming Jesus, you would now face uh, a real risk to your life and your livelihood, um, and especially from a Jewish background. And we see um, these people, and most of them, Jews, from what we know, and they wrote out these whole testaments about who Jesus was, and it apparently was known. Again, we, we know, know who the authors were, so it was known who they were. So if they were willing to put their life on the line, this reasoning goes, then we can expect that they likely would have wrote accurately. They wouldn't have just made up a story to kind of potentially get tortured and um, maybe killed for. They would have tried to be they, the information they would have tried to put out would have been accurate information. Uh, they, it's no one dies for a fairy tale. No one dies for something they know is fake. So, and that's another point of reference. So we have these different points of reference that we can know actually they would have written something that would have been accurate about Jesus. And so finally, what I want to talk about is okay. You might say. We've discussed these four bridges, and and it does seem like there are good. There's a good uh, set of bridges. There's a good uh, pathway to get from our Bible today to Jesus. But then, how do you know this is a divine word? And so, 
just thinking through some different ways that we can know that this is more than just um, this is more than just a biography. So one is Jesus' claims. Jesus makes some big claims. You know, Jesus claims to be the Messiah. He claims to be God. He claims to be the Son of God. Um, you have these huge claims that Jesus is making, um, and this tells us this is about something more than just a regular person. Um, there, there's something else going on here. Just looking at those claims and looking at miracles that were claimed by these authors. And again, when we have this uh, indications that they were giving accurate information, when we start to see them, okay, well, here's a, a miracle they're talking about. Here's a miracle they're talking about. And they're putting it out where this information can be tested. We're starting to see something like, hey, this is a little bit more than just you know a regular book. There's some divine sort of things happening. Um, this seems like there, there's something more happening. And then there's this connection to God and God's uh, what God is doing in the world. You know, Jesus said it, that he was sent from God. He came to seek and save the lost. You know, he has a mission from God that he's on. And he and and he says in John that the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance the things that I did. So he's saying the things I did are really important and people need to know about them. And so there's this uh and for divine reasons, right, for reasons that God had sent him to the earth. So this is all kind of giving evidence that this is more than just biographies. This, these are biographies, but they're also scripture. You know, this, and we can kind of take this from them and also go to the whole New Testament as these letters are being written to expound on what Jesus did, on the meaning of it, to help these churches understand and uh, grasp around what it means to live like Jesus, what it means to follow him. We see this divine uh, hand on these things in this way. Uh, another way that we see it is in um, fulfilled prophecy. So when we look at the Old Testament, which we'll talk about the evidence for the Old Testament next time, but thinking of just fulfilled prophecy. So there was a, um, a probability trying to determine, there was an attempt to determine and calculate what the probability is of all the fulfilled prophecy actually happening in one person's life. Um, and it was done by a professor at Westmont College. He gathered together 600 university students from all these different backgrounds and um, ways of life. And then he um, he uh, took he had them weigh the different factors that went into what each prophecy meant. Like if it said that um, if what what he would they would look at the situation of what that particular prophecy said, like someone being born in Bethlehem and What's the likelihood um, that um, the same person who this happened would also be born in Bethlehem? And they looked, they tried to compare and come up with numbers for, hey, what would be the likelihood of this and that? And they went on until there was unanimous agreement with the 600 people. So everybody there, even the most skeptical students, agreed in the end with their calculations. And they, so they were very conservative um, calculations. Um, and then after this, he even submitted it to um, the American Scientific Affiliation to have them look through all the factors they used to also um, compare it to see if it is, is it really scientific, is it dependable? Um, and they came out and said, yes, this is good. This is a good way of telling statistics, you know, of taking this particular problem of, hey, what does it mean for a prophecy to have been fulfilled? Um, and what what does it mean to look at the likelihood of that? Um, examining they only examined eight prophecies in the end, and that Jesus had fulfilled in his life according to all the different gospels. And the conservative estimate they got was it was one in ten to the seventeenth power. That's huge. That's a hugely small percentage. And what it points to is there's something else going. There's something divine going on. There's these promises about what would happen in the future that we know came before Jesus was ever born. And then we have all these these Gospels, which are giving us this accurate information about who Jesus was, and they all confirm that these things are all fulfilled in Jesus' life. Ten to the 17th power is a huge number of zeros, is a huge percentage. And so it just it's another thing that points along with what Jesus said about himself, along with, we'll look at resurrection evidence, but along with this evidence, we have this weird rising from the dead and being seen after he had died, being seen after it was confirmed he had died, um, and being talked to and, and by multiple people and groups and all of these things. 
All these things point to this being more than just a biography. And these letters talking about someone who is more than just a carpenter, more than just a person. Um, there was something divine about Jesus that we learn more about as we do read and actually read in the Gospels, as we read the New Testament letters. So in conclusion, what we want to say is that the New Testament is a reliable source of information about Jesus Christ. Um, miracles, uh, claims of divinity, uh, and other claims Jesus made, along with fulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament, um, give us... Um, good reason to believe that this is even more than a biography of Jesus' life, but there's something divine. There's something that makes this scripture a holy scripture. So uh, that is the main conclusion for today. Thank you for listening. Please comment down below and we will answer your questions either through email or next episode.